You're listening to the David Bumble Networking Podcast. Very good day interviewing a lot of Cisco engineers. We discuss all things networking, CCNA, CCNP, CCIE, Python, automation, the books, the exams, the future, your career. Another long day at Cisco Live. We talk to the authors, the experts, the leaders, and people like you and me. David Bumble coming to you from Oxford in the United Kingdom. Now, here's your host, David Bumble. Yeah, I really think that starting with Python is an absolutely ludicrous and stupid idea, and nobody should take this course. Okay, now you can cut that part out. So, uh, so obviously, I think that Python is a great language to start with. I'm not just saying that. I understand other programming languages as well. Um, I'm not a Python developer uh, in my normal day job, but I have experience with teaching Python and seeing people learn it and understanding and being able to compare Python to other languages. And in terms of people who do not understand programming, who need to jump, who want to jump in, or maybe they need to jump in, uh, Python is a great place to learn how to write software. And I would go so far as to say, uh, if you learn the things that we teach in this course and you know just about software development in the Python world, you will become a software developer. You'll be able to translate those skills into other languages. If somebody says, hey, I need you to do this uh, PHP stuff or I have a Perl program, or even if I have uh, you know, Java or C or something like that, you will have the basics uh, to be able to translate into that world well. And Python is like a stepping stone yeah. to get uh, up to where you, know, you may want to be. And you may never leave Python. Uh, much to my surprise, I had no idea that Python was taking up uh, to the extent that it was until I got asked to build this course. And since then, I found, wow, there's like a ton of people who are building Python libraries that everybody can use that are um, doing classes like this one, etc. So yeah, there's a lot of uh, interest in Python. And I, if I was a betting man, uh, then I would say, you know, Python, you could do a lot worse than choosing Python is the language to learn right out of the gate. Well, that's good to know. So if I'm like a young person getting into development or network engineer trying to learn this whole new dev DevOps world, Python is a good choice, yeah? Yeah, Python's a great choice. I think, you know, um, uh, one of the attributes that you need to have as a software developer is uh, perseverance. Yeah. When my wife looks at me, she calls it stubbornness. Uh, I guess it what, the sorry? positive on that. <laughs> What's that? What did she call it, sorry? She calls it stubbornness. Oh, the, so, uh, I've encountered that with you. <laughs> I'm sure that you have, yeah. But I mean, uh, you know, you have to have this uh, not give up type thing, yeah. I, idea. And so people who get into it, uh, I suspect, I don't know this from personal experience, but I expect a number of people look at it and it gets frustrating, or maybe those examples that they've copied and pasted, they know so little about what's going on that they think, well, I could never uh, get that. But yeah. uh, I think, I'm hoping that this course will help you to understand the basics. So you know that, number one, and number two, you know, once you understand the basics, then you have a better idea of what's going on, what's going wrong, and uh, you can stick with it. And 
uh, you know, that's just one of the attributes that you need to have as a software developer is perseverance. It's interesting. I was just thinking about it while you're talking. Um, one of the differences I see like with software development, like what you're doing versus say networking is a lot of network guys will just focus on a vendor. So they will just be Cisco or they'll just be Juniper. Now that's changing with the way that networking is changing. But like in your example, you use, if I remember right, do you using Java as part of an SD-WAN product, but then you're using Python to test it or something like that, is that right? So you're using multiple languages and using the strengths of both those languages, is that right? Right, yeah, in the domain that I live in, there's multiple languages going on. So uh, we're writing, I'm writing primarily in Java at the moment. We have a lot of uh, software that's being written in the newer language, uh, Go. Oh, wow. So there's that going on. Uh, in uh, the company that I you know, co-founded that I'm working with right now, Talak Networks, we have a product and that product uses uh, not only some Java, but also Ruby and Scala um, and C in the devices. So networking device code is typically written in the C programming language. So uh, yeah, I, th I mean, once you learn the basics, and I do think that Python is good for people who are not software developers by trade, Python's a good on-ramp. Once you learn that, then I do believe that it extrapolates fairly well into all these other languages, should you choose to learn them. And I know that a lot of uh, you know kids growing up now are getting taught Python as a as one of the first languages. And then if they go forward, of course, then they learn some of the more advanced stuff of uh, Java or C++ or whatever it might be. So, I mean, I wanna diverge for a second. What are your top three languages to learn? I mean, you've mentioned Python, you've mentioned Go, uh, you've mentioned Java. What would you suggest someone, like if they wanna learn Python and something else to kind of balance that? Yeah, so let me, um, <laughs> Let me just run these off and I'm going to tell you this on the basis of uh, what comes in on my LinkedIn feed. For some reason, LinkedIn suspects that I'm always looking for a job. I don't know if it's because they know that I'm working with you, David, and they know that uh, I'm doomed by that relationship and want to look elsewhere. But uh, they tell me about these jobs and the programming languages that they uh, that I get uh, information about typically are going to be Python or Java uh, or C or C sharp. You know, a number of people are doing that. If you're going to be in the Apple world, Objective C, those are languages that people tend to be using. Some of these other. Okay, sorry, Chuck. So we got interrupted there. So apologies for that, everyone. So you were saying that the top languages are Python, I think you mentioned C. C sharp, Objective C for Apple, and um, I already mentioned Java. What else was there? You mentioned Go. Is Go sort of important or not? Sorry, go on. Is Go important or should we not worry about Go yet? I suspect Go is getting to be more important, but uh, I really don't have an opinion one way or another on that. I think because it's relatively new. Um, there's not all that much existing Go code out there. I mean, it depends on what you're looking for. If you're going to be interested in becoming a developer on, you know, brand new products, then maybe Go will be the language people will be using. If you're talking about 
going into a domain where there's already people, there's already code and products and stuff that needs to be supported or enhanced, then you're going to see less go in those situations and more of C and the C derivatives like C++, C Sharp, Objective-C, etc. Yeah, so we should mention that, Chuck. You've just released a course on Udemy. And what's that course about? Is it is it Java? Is it Python? What, what's your course about? Yeah, the course is a Python course. I think one of the things, uh, in my mind anyway, that makes it a little bit unique from other courses is my goal is to make the student into an actual developer of software. I think a lot of courses that I've seen, uh, I mean, they're very good and they do a good job of saying, hey, if you want to do this particular task, here's some code that does it and here's a quick overview. And then what I've uh, had in terms of people that I know, uh, what I've discovered is that they basically become good at uh, copying and pasting code that somebody has posted on the internet or wherever, but they haven't really learned how to be a developer. So my goal in this course is to help people become actual developers. So I do try to focus on um, making an understanding of software development and programming part of the student's DNA so that they can take it much further. When you do just the copy and paste, uh, it's very good for your one task if you can make it work, but you don't really learn how to expand on that and extrapolate it. And so the course is designed to give examples of what you can do uh, with it. I go through my own code. I challenge people to write applications and then I go over how I solve that application. And along the way, I'm hoping that I'm focusing on all of the really important stuff. You know, um, the way that I kind of work is that I find that there's a few things that it's really important uh, to know about. And if you understand those few things, then you can utilize those as tools throughout, uh, you know, the course of whatever you're attempting to do. And that's kind of my goal. People become experts at Python, uh, data structures such as lists and dictionaries and complicated, uh, complex nested data structures, you know, you can extrapolate that in any direction you want and, and that will allow you to become a good programmer. That's kind of what the course is about. So is the course for like people that are new to Python or is it like for experts? Yeah, so I've been teaching this course to a number of uh, networking vendor audiences in multiple uh, contexts. And so what I find in these classes is that we have absolute rank beginners who know absolutely nothing, um, but want to learn. And we have managers who are probably there just because they have to be there. And then we have some, what I would call intermediate to advanced Python developers. Uh, when I do these courses, now bear in mind, this is a two day course, but when I do them, I find that some of the things that I touch on and many of the things I touch on are new to even the most advanced people. And yet the uh, beginners are able to come up to speed at a reasonable pace. So I would say, you know, if you're already a competent Python developer, then this course may be of interest to you. There's a couple of things I point out. Um, if you're a total beginner, then yeah, this course is for you. If you're an intermediate, someone who's seen Python, code and attempted to dabble in it, but you know, you don't know exactly what the heck it's doing. I think this course will be really good at 
uh, helping you to understand what's going on and then maybe even uh, the things that you've done in the past, you'll understand them better and be able to improve those programs and refactor certain things, et cetera. If you're advanced, uh, this course may or may not be for you. Uh, you may learn a couple of things. Um, if you think you're advanced, but really you've just been copying and pasting code and getting it to work, you may want to take this course just because you'll understand the foundations behind what it is that you've been doing. I guess that's how I would uh, capture uh, the intended, intended audience for this course. Yeah, so you, if I understand right, you were teaching like a classroom-based course for network engineers, or you've been doing that for a long time, which was the two-day course. You've also done a course for Cisco, um, like an online course, yeah. and this is a new course that we're talking about. Is that right? That's on Udemy and on GNS3 Academy, yeah? That's absolutely correct. Yeah, this is a completely new course. When I did the other course that you mentioned, uh, I was actually new to Python. I was actually a Python... Uh, Hater may be too strong a word, but I thought that anybody that did, you know, programming language that uh, requires indentation for identifying code blocks. I mean, I left that way back in 1970s when I was in college. Uh, and so uh, what I've done since then, since I, ha I actually had to do this course, I've come to really like Python. There's many things that I uh, even use Python 4 right now. I'm developing a cloud-based Java application as part of a team, and we have very advanced uh, Java developers and Java development uh, idioms and patterns and tools and open source software and code that we write, et cetera. I'm writing Python uh, applications as uh, adjunct functionality to test the code that we write. And so I've actually come full circle in terms of Python. And now that I've rambled on for a while, I've forgotten entirely what your question was, David. Oh yeah, you're asking about that course that I did for that other uh, networking vendor. Yeah, that was kind of early on in my Python days. It covers a lot of the stuff that I cover in the class. It goes a little bit further, but of course, you know, we have this one class uh, that we put out there on Udemy. I'm already working on uh, more advanced courses to do um, web-based development using web frameworks, object-oriented uh, programming, things of that nature. So you'll get to learn uh, more as you go on. But this class, as I mentioned before, kind of gives you the bedrock or the foundation upon which you can, you can really do a whole lot with just a, a deep understanding of the basics. And that's what this course gives you. Yeah, when I was going through the course, I um I remember you specifically mentioned something, and you mentioned those terms a few minutes ago, where you mentioned lists and dictionaries. So, when would you recommend using a dictionary over a list? I think you kind of alluded to that in the course. Yeah, so I mean, uh, one of the things about Python is it is phenomenal when it comes to its data structures. Uh, I've worked with many. So, sorry, Chuck, what's a data structure? <laughs> a list or a dictionary, David. So yeah, the things that you're talking about, the places that you store data in your program, that is a data structure. Okay. And programming languages that are more advanced, like Java, uh, Scala, uh, Ruby, um, any of the other, C++, any of these other programming languages have a rich capability for doing lots of things with data structures, but 
it's complicated and things uh, you need to understand. You need to have a little bit of local knowledge or insider knowledge to be able to make things work. Python is really built in a simple manner in many ways and data structures, things like lists of data things and dictionaries of things uh, are examples of that. So Python makes that really easy. Now, to get to your particular question, and we haven't talked about exactly what a list is or a dictionary, but I'll assume uh, people are familiar with the terms. You would use a list. Or they if, can go and take your course, yeah? Sorry? Or they can go and take uh, take your course. Well, I'm assuming that they will, yes. Yeah. So <laughs> plunk down a little bit of coin, take the course, and then uh, listen to the rest of this interview. If you don't know what it is, or just listen to me, and I'll hopefully describe it a little bit along the way. A list yeah. is a an ordered sequential um data structure or collection of things that you need to store. So something uh, that you have a long list of devices that you don't think you're going to have to get to a particular one, but you just have a whole lot of these things. Or, uh, you know, if you're doing something in a uh, in social media, all of the comments that somebody makes on a picture in Instagram or in Facebook or something like that, you can store those in a list. Yeah. A dictionary, on the other hand, is also a collection of data, just like a list. But the important uh, differentiating factor is that you have a key to every one of those items. So I mentioned a second ago, if you have a list of networking devices that you are keeping track of, then you can keep them in a list. And that's okay if you have 10 or 20 or even perhaps a hundred devices, but if you need to get at a particular item in that list, then it's gonna be difficult because you'll have to search through it. Even if it is sorted, you'll have to go through it in some order. On the other hand, if you have a dictionary, it gives you immediate random access to the, to the item that you are interested in. So if you have a dictionary of networking devices and the key, is the IP address of the device, then you can get at the device um, immediately. So that's kind of where you would use the two uh, in different situations. So, so in the course, I think the, the example you used is a list is fine if you have like 10 items, but if you have like 10,000 items, you probably want to use a dictionary. Is that correct? Uh, that's generally true. I mean, every situation is going to be different. If you have 10,000 items, but you will never be needing to get to one item in the middle immediately, then a list is okay. Um, on the other hand, if you do anticipate the need to get at something immediately, then yeah, a dictionary is good. And the nice thing about Python is there's very little overhead in creating dictionaries uh, that point at actually the same data. In the course, I talk about how in Python, everything is an object. And if yeah. you're new or a beginner, you will have no absolute idea what I'm talking about. If you're intermediate or advanced, then this is an important concept for you to understand. So, uh, yeah. So going back to your example, if you had an Instagram post with like 50 or 1,000 entries or comments or whatever, that's fine to store on a list because you're not going to go and look for one in the middle. But if you had Correct. a... 10,000 or 1,000 network devices and you had to find one in the middle or somewhere based on IP address, then a dictionary would be a better choice. 
Is that right? Right. Well, I mean, uh, so what you could do is you can create all of your data and then you kind of have a dictionary that points at every item. In fact, you can have, and I didn't even, I don't even go into this in the class, but as long as you mention it, uh, let's say that Mac address, you might want to search by Mac address and you might want to search by IP address. You can create kind of adjunct dictionaries that point at your actual data for that device. And you can have one dictionary that has uh, is based keyed on IP address and one that is keyed on MAC address. And it's oh, very wow. overhead. You're storing the data only once, you know, the important data about your device, you're only storing it once, but you have different references or pointers to that data in your dictionary. And you don't even know that that's going on. You just create it. And oh, then wow. the course, I give an example of that. I give an example uh, where you have a bunch of charges on your credit card or whatever it might be. And we read those in as a list. I only have a handful of them anyway, but then, uh, you know, maybe you want to get at those charges based on the vendor. So, you know, if you go to Starbucks a lot, then you want to find, okay, just show me every charge that I have at Starbucks. Well, you can just create this dictionary that points at the actual data. That is the charge, you know, where it occurred, how much it was, you know, the, the street address, et cetera, all of this information is stored once, but your dictionary, uh, it actually keeps track of, you know, all of this pointing at all the Starbucks charges. So uh, Python is really good at that. It's very easy to do this, especially compared to other programming languages. I mean, the guy that invented Python is a software developer who developed in languages like C, C++, Java, et cetera. And he just said, you know what, there might be an easier way to do this. And, you know, let's face it, a whole lot of things that we do in this world came about because somebody said there might be an easier way to do this. Let me see if I can come up with that. And that's kind of what he did. So, Chuck, you mentioned a term and I've got asked this on Twitter um, and I don't know if we've got enough time, but let let me know what you what you think. I mean, you you mentioned NetConf. And we, we've discussed in the past, you and I, about APIs. So if, if, if you can, what, briefly, what is NetConf and what is an API? And why is an API better than doing screen scraping Python scripts type thing? Uh, yeah, so um, basically, as you guys probably all know, uh, if you're involved in the networking world, NetConf is a successor to SNMP. SNMP is quite long in the tooth, as we say, and it's been around for a while. We've tried to kill it a number of times. It's diminished in its popularity. And uh, so, yeah, we needed a new network management language. NetConf was intended to be a tool for configuring network devices prior to the existence of software-defined networking. Now, NetConf is pretty much like um, SNMP and SNMP, you have a MIB in NetConf, you have a Yang model. Um, unfortunately, SNMP has more MIBs, more common shared MIBs defined than NetConf does today, but there are going to be common Yang models at some point in our future. Once all the vendors actually implement those, um, NetConf, uh, has the ability to do 
what we call remote procedure calls or RPCs where, you know, in SNMP, if you wanted to tell the device to do something, you had to set a MIB object with netconf. You can actually call a function on the device and pass it parameters and get return codes back. So you can see right there, the ability to do programmatic stuff is way more available to you via netconf than it is with other programming languages. Now, let me just stop you right there, David, with your comment about screen scraping. Believe me, I've lived in the world of having to do screen scraping for decades. We had to do this when we did network management for networking devices, and we had to build drivers for every single device, every single CLI. And I will tell you, screen scraping, uh, that output is very well written to be read by a human being. And it fails miserably when you try to read it from a computer. So somebody changes a colon to a semicolon or to a dash, or it adds an extra column in an output table that basically breaks everybody's screen scraping application. So um, I would recommend as strongly as possible to avoid screen scraping if at all possible. It may not be possible in every situation, I understand that. But just be aware, every new version of the device, whoever was doing the CLI may have decided you know, I don't like the spelling of this particular word, so they changed the spelling of that word to be more grammatically correct, and they just broke your entire application. Every little character that they put in, it's very much fraught with peril. So NetConf allows you to not have to worry about that. Now, the problem with NetConf is that not every device supports it. And furthermore, I alluded to this, but one of the problems is that we don't have common, basically MIBs, for lack of a better term, in NetConf like we did in SNMP. In SNMP, we have the system MIB, we have the interface MIB, we had um, the Armon MIB, uh, all of these different MIBs that everybody implemented and you could trust being implemented on every device. So it made it very easy to use SNMP for the limited set of things that it was, uh, data that it was giving you. Uh, NetConf, on the other hand, everybody defines their own effectively MIB. Uh, the, the word that you need to understand in NetConf that is the equivalent of MIB in the SDN world is a Yang model. Not just Yang, if somebody says, my device, some, some uh, salesman comes up to you and says, yes, my device is interoperable because it supports Yang they've told you absolutely nothing. What's important is, does it support uh, the particular Yang model that you're interested in, whether that's for routing or the interface Yang model, etc. And unfortunately, most people aren't there yet, but they probably will be. And then doing Python NetConf stuff will become much easier. And there are nice Python libraries for doing uh, NetConf. I've utilized those. Uh, you could also use the Open Daylight Controller, which I taught people how to use for many years. Uh, just be prepared for it being way more complicated than just NetConf. Yeah, so I think 
Chuck, from my point of view, as like a cynical network engineer, the problem with NetConf or trying to use an API, which is better, I understand, for programming, uh, whereas a CLI screen scrapers for humans. And just so that everyone understands, when we talk about screen scraping, we're talking about like show run or show IP route or something like that. And you, you get the application to basically type that command on the router switch and then you, you look at the output. But coming back to the, the point, um, the problem with NetConf and a lot of these cool APIs is the devices don't support them yet. So if you've got an old switch, you're kind of stuck doing screen scraping. Would you, is that true? Do you agree with that? Yeah, no, that's a totally true statement. And furthermore, NetConf is not universally supported across all um, vendor product lines. So it primarily was driven by customers like AT&T and other carriers who coerced Juniper first, and then Cisco had to follow suit to create a better uh, SNMP. And so it, it uh, grew out of the whole service provider industry. So you'll see uh, the like Cisco's devices, their XR uh, line of devices. I don't even know what the devices are in Juniper. I think Juniper across the line uh, does support um, NetConf in all of their devices. But Cisco, uh, Cisco, it's only certain devices. And furthermore, remember uh, the comment that I made about Yang models. Every different uh, Cisco product line has its own set of Yang models. So if you write an application to use NetConf on one line of Cisco devices, let's say XR, and then you go to write, uh, take that and port that um, application or have it pointed at um, other types of Cisco devices, you may be sadly um, become sadly aware that the Yang models used by that device are different than the ones that are used by the XR devices. So you just have to be aware of that. So, I mean, NetConf is like high-end stuff from the sounds of things, and hopefully that's where a lot of devices will go. They have a proper API. Correct. I think that, uh, you know, SNMP, et cetera, is going to get uh, evolved out of all devices eventually. So, so what is a REST API then? So um, a REST API, uh, I have to take you back to the old days of software development. You would make a programming call from one program to another program, and that was very easy to do when both uh, of those programs were running on the same system, yeah. the same computer, and it was very easy to do. Once we started to have distributed systems and you had to call across from one computer to another, then either people had to invent their own protocol and mechanism for making these things we call remote procedure calls, or they had to um, use something. If you've heard of XML SOAP, that was in vogue for a while. And basically somebody came along. This is one of those things that I mentioned in another of our discussions, David, where I said, you know, somebody just kind of comes along and says, hey, there's a better and simpler way to do stuff. Uh, REST APIs are that thing that is easier to do for making remote procedure calls. So a REST API is just a mechanism for making a remote procedure call from one entity to another. That entity can be running on the same system, but more likely it's running on another system. And these days, 
especially in my world, uh, it may be running in the cloud and the device may be located on premises. So that's what it's useful for. It uses the HTTP protocol, which is allowed through just about every firewall. And so it's very handy for doing things, you know, when you have to go up to the cloud or whatever. That um, uses uh, HTTP methods such as git, put, post, delete, patch in order to perform these RPC type calls. It passes in parameters via the URL that it uses or the request body or a query string. And then the receiver basically interprets what it received, performs the operation, and then returns the value in the HTTP response. So basically it's two devices, which could be a computer talking to a server or computer to computer or computer talking to a router or switch. So it basically makes an API call to that device, sends a command and then something is returned. Is that right? Yeah, if you had REST running on uh, the device, that's the way that it would work. The way that it works some other times, in fact, in the cloud environment I mentioned is that the device communicates back with the cloud-based uh, management and control system, which itself has a REST API. Okay. So okay. a number of implementations have the management software running in the cloud, receiving REST calls at regular intervals from the devices. So I'm gonna wrap up the call now, Chuck. I just want to thank you for your time. Thanks to everyone who has watched or listened to this call. Please don't forget to send me messages on Twitter. My handle is at David Bomble. You can send me tweets and I'll collate those and put them together for future calls for Chuck. Chuck, I wanna thank you very much. Um, and before we close off, I just wanna remind everyone that Chuck has a new course available on Udemy and the GNS3 Academy. It's a great introductory course if you wanna learn about Python. It does teach programming methodologies and ways of thinking. Chuck, hopefully I got that right. Um, but it's for anyone who wants to learn to program with the mentality of a programmer. Is that right? That is correct. You nailed it. Great. Thanks so much, Chuck. And thanks for your time. Enjoy sunny California. Greetings from the UK. Likewise. Thanks for joining us on today's podcast. Be sure to visit David's YouTube channel at David Bumble, where you can subscribe and watch all of his videos. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. Catch you next time on the David Bumble Networking Podcast. All the best. Take care.